Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is Lawrence Rickard. Hello to you. Hi, Larry. How are you? I'm super well. Very Good. pleased to be here. It's very nice to see you. It is, isn't it? It must be. <laughs> you, you imagine You're lucky that. fools. Yeah. This is obviously uh, a dream come true. <laughs> to meet you a lot. <laughs> to meet you a lot. Well, any time you want me to come back, I'll pop in tomorrow. Have <laughs> a good day. But this, oh, this is very, very nice, because you're obviously now currently covered in glory from, from ghosts, which has gone down brilliantly. Yes, it's been a really lovely experience, which, as we all know, isn't always the case with comedy. Uh, particularly on... Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, particularly BBC One, which was a, a terrifying experience we've always been sort of uh, had our heads well below the trenches you know have yeah. horrible histories obviously being on CBBC and uh, Yonderland and not, not to say negative about being on Sky One it was lovely but there's only so many people you're exposed to and suddenly you're kind of uh, exposing yourself to a potentially a lot of pot shots well, on see, BBC One and, and it's been lovely experience I, I, I think I saw you just before it found its slot and you yeah. just, it was a very very strange thing to to shepherd into the public because it, it's it's filling a slot that does doesn't exist. Hmm. The, re- the reason that it was in demand is there isn't one of these, and you're trying to make it for a slot that the BBC goes, well, we don't know where to put one of these. And the answer yeah. is because you haven't got one. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to give them their dues, they were really, really open, just said, we like this idea, thankfully. Make the show that you guys want to make, and we'll work out what to do with it, where to put it, and how to schedule it. Obviously, and quite correctly, there's a number of rules in place at the BBC, and because of some things that have happened down the years on the BBC, a number of those rules are now quite stringent. And so, you know, there's things that we bring up, particularly when you've got a show about 
prevent about dead people, which push you the other side of the, the watershed. And so, uh, you know, we had to cross that bridge. And so suddenly we, it's quite an open show in terms of its audience. It's quite sort of family orientated, but um, it was ended up being on at 9.30 and uh, how that worked um, and how in a kind of iPlayer world, how slot matters less and less because fewer and fewer people watch yeah, things live. Yeah. Did you find that with your audience numbers? Because I certainly watched it with my kids on iPlayer whenever they were available, which isn't 9.30 at night. Yeah, it did really well on people catching up. I think the first sort of episode or two, you know, because obviously it also aggregates. So there are a lot of people yeah. who go, who want to binge something and don't, so don't start watching a show until all of it's out. <laughs> and so, well, you know, which is sort of how we, particularly younger people, he said, um, watch comedy now. So, yeah, there were, there were people who didn't start watching it until episode six had finished. And so that, that first episode keeps on gathering viewers. So yeah. sort of that, the, the episode one sort of up above five million now, wow. which is great. You know, in, wow. in the modern world of terrestrial television is, is incredible. And, and so, yeah, between people watching it live, people catching up across the following week and then people waiting until there's a, a bank of them that they can watch together, it's, it's performed really well. And thankfully, they're, they're letting us do some more. So there are three points on the audience now. There are when it goes out when it's available to catch up and when the whole series is available to catch up? Well, I don't know the degree to which they still track the last one. I think, you know, the official figures are still very much people watching it live and people who catch up. Um, it used to be that it was live plus 24, so yeah. literally yeah. that day, and then plus 7. I think now it's largely live and plus 7. But there is also that rolling figure, particularly while things are still on, you know, that homepage that yeah. you get on, mm. on apps like the iPlayer. People can discover things long after it is transmitted. This is crazy because I think that we, we grew up in a generation where, where we were encouraged when we first started writing to look at things like overnight figures hmm. and ratings for everything. I remember we did some work about probably five years ago for Gogglebox and we sort of put together a, a book for them and, and I was always of the impression that Gogglebox was a, was a fiction that yeah. families didn't gather around the TV anymore and watch it. I thought oh they're watching DVDs they've been sent by the production team. This isn't really happening. And then we looked up and the BARB figures about five years ago were that 85% of programmes were watched live by a family on a sofa when they went out. Yeah. And I thought, God, I thought that was a vintage and antique thing. I am sure that is not true anymore. And that must have changed really quickly. And I'm wondering whether the culture of certainly comedy, where the demand is for things to hit straight away, whether people have quite caught up with the fact that people consume everything so differently now. Yeah, I think the model changes year on year. And also depending on who your target audience is, even on something like BBC One, that's a very broad church. And ours has performed quite well with a younger audience and they watch things very differently to how their parents do. Uh, And again, across the channel spectrum, the BBC One will have more people watching things live, you know, whereas obviously BBC Three, the way it ended up as an online model is more and more people watching it on catch-up than watching it live and so you sort of embrace that wholesale which is actually even though there was quite a at the time has been a model that's worked quite well for it yeah in 10 years time the way in which content is viewed will be completely different again yeah because also what you've done as well is you've moved from being a group who just entertained families yeah to going for something which is in many ways far more mature the material's far more mature the jokes are more mature it's headed more back towards the black addery area that probably inspired you in the first place yeah absolutely and i think you know uh, matt bangton always made this point really well which was that when we were growing up, a lot of the comedies you watched, you watched with your family and things like Blackadder, you know, which we all loved. And I remember I sat down and watched that, my brother watched it, my mum and dad. And then there was kind of a time somewhere in the 90s where comedy became the thing that adults watched, probably because of, you know, a big growth in alternative comedy and things like that. Family comedy became a code for something for kids that was completely separate. Mm, And so you'd either have a thing for kids or you'd have a thing for adults. And the two never mixed. And all we've sort of tried to do 
with our approach is to go, it's just comedy. And in some ways, having the slot that we ended up with for Ghosts has kind of helped in that way because it's on at 9.30, people are going, well, this must be just a comedy show. Yeah. Because it's on <laughs> after the watershed. And so... Was that a nerve-wracking thing to be, be put in that thing where someone might turn on and go, well, it's not Alan Partridge? Yeah. Particularly because we were going into the Alan Partridge slot. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Ooh, wow. uh, which is wonderful. I mean, apart from anything else, you know, when you're trying to inherit an audience and, and you know, do the best that you can for the yeah. thing you've made, that gives you a fighting chance. But it's very different tonally. And there were a lot of people going, we really enjoy this, but why is it on at this slot? And you kind of go, I understand that question coming up, but if you really enjoyed it, does it matter? And yeah. also, again, in an iPlayer world, it's actually on whenever you want it. Yeah, yes, it, it's not a nine thirty. If you don't want it to be a nine thirty show, then it's not a nine thirty show. It's the dream we all had as children. You can schedule your own television. <laughs> exactly, you can now. And obviously, you know, you want people. Uh, the people have to look at it and go, "Is this right for my seven-year-old, twelve-year-old, whatever it might be?" There's a lot of conversations about that. That is a conversation. I'm a parent hmm. that you have all the time. People say, "Oh, this new thing. Is it all right for my kids?" A new movie comes out. There is a, a, an ongoing conversation about not trusting the certificates yeah. or the scheduling and just going. Do you think my kids will be able to watch? Well, we get that. A lot of people going on Twitter once they saw it's coming out and going on it's a BBC One, but it's on at 9.30, but it's guys and they did Yonderland and Horrible Histories and, and were contacting us and going, is this okay for my eight-year-old? And I go, well, I've never met your eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> it will be fine for some and other, and there will be, yeah. equally, there will be 12-year-olds who go, I found that bit a bit scary. And there will be six-year-olds who go, none of it scared me. They're all clearly idiots, uh, which, again, is <laughs> really fair. Um <laughs> So, One yeah. of the things that characterises the stuff that the six of you have done, apart from the quality of it, is that it's always been deeply silly, hasn't it? Yeah. In a lovely, <laughs> lovely way. We, we tried to... Yeah, I mean, we I mean, kind the whole, of... The fact that Simon Farnaby walks around for the whole of that first series of Ghosts and presumably for the second series as well, with no trousers on the entire time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's actually it's a contractual thing with Simon. <laughs> Costume, actor's yeah. own. Yeah. It was very hard to write that into the character. But, um, yeah, I mean, we one of the things that came up really early on was the fact that everyone, when they thought about ghosts, anyone who says they've seen a ghost, it's either from the Tudor period up to World War Two, mm. and never earlier and never later, yeah. which kind of makes a nonsense of the whole thing so we went we should have a caveman and we should have someone who died in like 1997 yeah <laughs> and so we ended up with a kind of a, a, a 90s politician and i don't know if you remembered in the 90s but there were a few scandals sort of popped up <laughs> yes. shockingly yep. in the political world and we just thought it would be lovely to have a guy who's trying to maintain a kind of cameron slash bear dignity but Hasn't has literally got no trousers on. It has been caught so in flagrante that he's got to spend eternity with that sort as of below walking, the waist shame. As a yeah. walking indignity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but still trying to carry himself with, with the dignity he believed he deserved. And Simon just does it so joyously. Doesn't he? Doesn't yeah. he though? What's nice about that as well is it is one of the best bits of watching it with children is explaining everything Simon says. Yeah. <laughs> so what does he mean there? It doesn't matter. And I, it's, a, it's nice to have something where stuff is meant to over children's heads yeah. and it's fine hmm. well talking about you know with um, Life of Brian there's an awful lot of that that I watched as a child yeah. that I watch again now and go I was laughing at that I think I was laughing at a completely different joke to what totally. my dad yeah. was we should say we, we, we've come on this is quite an exciting episode for us not only because we've been dying to do one with you it really is an exciting also, episode also we are going to talk about what is literally the holy grail of Monty Python films <laughs> Life of Brian God that's confusing <laughs> oh man you've had that for 48 hours no, haven't I, you I, I, th tell. I thought of that in the toilet just now <laughs> Completely like worth far. it.
I think that you'd said ages ago when we said if you came on what would you do and you said can I do Life of Brian I went well no one's taken it yet and also I can't think of anyone better to do it for two reasons one of the obvious one that there's history and comedy being put together here hmm. the other one is it's a six person team because I think the thing that makes Life of Brian particularly fascinating is it's the masterpiece of a six person team yeah and they're all pulling in different directions and somehow this comes out hmm. and I reckon that's Oh, that's lightning in a bottle, surely. Absolutely. I think, you know, everyone sort of knows it was uh, slightly fractious and it grew more so with, with that particular truth. But I think it was, Brian occurred at that perfect time where they'd spent some time apart, but it was before things really broke down or anything like that. And there's creative differences and things bubbling, but it only yeah. gives it fizz. Yeah. It just yeah. It feels like it's just on that tipping point. Because there know? are creative differences on meaning of life, which mm. lead to which yield very different results yeah. than they do for Life of Brian. Absolutely. It's at the perfect point where they're splitting apart, but they're still really good. Things aren't like they used to be, yeah. but they've all gone off and done something that, that's satisfied their ego. Mm. There's a lovely documentary which is on the Criterion uh, disc of Life of Brian called The Pythons, and it's a location report from Tunisia. And what's great about it is every time they introduce a python, they say, who's also famous for, and it'll be Ripping Yarns or 40 yeah. Towers. Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky. They've all gone and done something and then come back and are no longer desperate to outshine their no, colleagues. Absolutely. I think there's a generosity in it and you feel that. There are scenes where you can see they're each allowing the other to shine. But also I think they've gone away and done things and you, you always learn from a new experience. Mm. And I think they, they've come back and gone, well, this is what I put in my bag in the last two years. <laughs> yeah, I'll bring and, that to share it with the guys. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, which I think why it is, in, in my opinion, the, the greatest of their films. It, it really it feels is, the most accomplished. I mean, it yeah. is actually a masterpiece. It's definitely a masterpiece. Absolutely. Best thing the Romans ever did for us. Oh, yeah. If we didn't have crucifixion, this country would be in a right bloody mess. Go! Nail them up, I say! Go! Nail some sense into them! <laughs> they all talk about what a happy project it was as well. Apart from Terry Gilliam, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which well, is sort of not surprising. He wanted to make his own film. I, yeah. I, he's the one who was always off on his own, yeah. even more than Eric Idle. He's the one who's off on his own and being asked to come and collaborate. And they said, well, you can't direct this time because you nearly killed each other doing Holy Grail because the two Terrys just fought. Yeah. Uh, one Terry, too many behind the camera. Hmm. Um, and he comes back and he's allowed to do an art department. And all you ever hear from Terry Gilliam is he's annoyed that his his art department stuff wasn't in shot yeah. enough, yeah. which is the classic moan of a non-collaborator. Yeah, basically, there weren't enough wides, is what yeah. he's saying. Why yeah. can't you see my set? Having said that, I should be fair to him. He does talk about how pleased he was with the title sequence, which is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's also, it's just, you know, everyone has to put production hats on from time to time, and you always want to be creative, but you're going, we've got to achieve this on a budget and the schedule. To have something which feels completely fit within the scale and tone of that film as epic, but which is actually drawings. Yeah, and it's funny. Yeah, it's really mm. funny. It's, it's a, just packed with actually, gags. That whole title sequence, it, it tells you how this film's going to work, and it's a huge step on from, from Holy Grail in mm. that it is going to work by being a pastiche and preposterous and full of jokes, but completely in a key. So the song, the title song, the, the Shirley Bassey number... Yeah is as good as a Shirley Bassey number. It's it's not a joke about a bad one. No. And the animated title sequence is big and preposterous and over the top, but it's a good Hollywood yeah, epic yeah. title sequence. And the, the key thing for me is the first thing you see is some people riding into shot and they're actually on animals, not coconuts. Yes, yes. And you yes. go, this, course, this is a film. We're doing it properly. We're going to have the proper sets from it. They're Zephyrelli's sets from Jesus of Nazareth, yeah, aren't they? And they're right, going to go yeah. to Tunisia. It's going to be, there won't be any jokes about us not being able to do this properly. No. 
Absolutely. It's a huge leap forward. It's doing a good version of what it is. It's just making it funny. And like you know, like you say, you're you're listening to the first two or three lines of that song and going, Is this Bassy? <laughs> it could be. He had In fact, it's, she was 16, wasn't she? The girl who actually sung it. Really? Was that who then what? became... Was she it? was um, 16? But she um, was a session singer through the 80s and 90s and sung on all sorts of big wow. hits. But I think that was her first gig, and she was 16, and she belts it. It's magnificent. It's an incredible vocal performance. And it's got the, the central joke of that, that lyric. You're talking about things going over your head. Hmm. It's got a central joke that is a, a thing no one really talks about with Python that I really like, because Eric Idle's really good at this. And so, actually, all the all of them, when they're writing, they're very good at man-of-the-world phrasing, like what nudge nudges, basically. Hmm. And th- that's the first time I'd ever heard the phrase, one off the wrist. Yeah. <laughs> and one off the wrist is, is a saloon bar bores phrase that doesn't belong in a Shirley Bassey song, yeah. but is belted out in a way that, again, if you were a kid watching it, it would just go over your head, only when you were like, what's that? Well, I suppose because it's, they're about to tell a biblical allegory and they're basically going, it's going to be the story of someone's life. They go, right, unfortunately, because of the age of the Pythons, we're going to be joining this with this guy somewhere in his 30s. <laughs> so we need to bring you up to speed. You've seen him be born and we're going to meet him again in a bit. And in between then, he had adolescence and it's quite, uh, masturbate. It's quite a good so. uh, biblical joke as well, because one of the things that's missing from the Bible is anything between Christ's yeah. childhood and him starting preaching. Hmm. So they've said, well, what would have happened? Well, he'd have learned to wang. I mean, you know, if they were right, you can see why got cut out we're going we're to take 20 pages out of this because you go somewhere a bit weird <laughs> but it's also, what's quite nice is, is that with all the furore that happened about this it's it's quite interesting to not talk too much about the furore and just talk about the film but all the furore there isn't much in it to object to but weirdly that song yeah. about, about tonally is way off it's yeah. probably it says uh, all bets are off we're going to be a bit yeah, rude yeah. it opens so nicely as well and it opens with the central joke of the film the thing that they defend when they're doing such a night on Sunday morning against Muggeridge and they're being accused of, of blasphemy and things and they keep saying it's not Jesus it's not Jesus it's not about Jesus we don't want to do the thing about Jesus that's not funny that central joke is is told in that first scene with Mandy and the, the shepherds yep. wordlessly and they do the whole that lovely sketch about do a shit nativity and then the wise men go next door yeah and no one says, oh, the real Jesus is next door. It's all done in a shot. Mm. It says to the audience, I hope you're paying attention because this is actually the central joke of the film and no one's actually going to say it yeah. out loud. And it's incre- incredibly flattering. OK, you got the joke? And then it just starts. Mm. This is definitely not a film about Jesus because, look, he's in there where the light's coming from. Yeah. This is about the guy in the next table. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, that's, yeah. it's, got, it's got possibly my favourite line in all of Python, which is... Oh, there's an animal called a bomb. Or did I dream it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliantly off the yeah. end. But it's, it's also it's a nice batshit, proper Python sketch character from Flying Circus, hmm. Terry Jones in a dress, <laughs> screeching. So it says, OK, it looks great. And again, it's a lovely matte painting at the beginning. Terry Williams yeah. and a lovely bit of art direction. The music's great. Everything's at top quality. It's not got that low budget vibe that made their sketches funny and mm. made and made Holy Grail funny. Going, it's a different joke now. We're going to be in this world, and we're going to, Eric Idle said it's suburban morality in 33 AD. Yeah. And you know, that's the joke. Bang. That's going to that, work. I mean, that's set up so nicely. Well, as soon as you come back after you've had the the titles, and you see Jesus on the mount. 
and it does epic and it does scale. It shows yeah. you it's a proper film. It's a big wide shot and it pulls back across the crowd and you find someone right at the back, can't hear, who says, speak up. Yeah. And you go, that's these are the people this film is about. Yeah. It's Rosencrantz the people and just Johnstone. E- exactly. Yeah. It's the, it's the They're people. just existing. There's a, there's a fascination in Python all the time. Gilliam goes on about it all the time. He likes the people in the margins of the, the manuscript. He mm. likes the people who are shitting out of windows in the side of the Bible. It, it's, they're, they're, they're fascinated by the people in the, on the edge of the action. The action's going on. Yeah. Holy Grail has, has sort of one joke in it, which is that an epic keeps trying to start and boring people keep getting in the way and worrying about swallows and, and who's king. Yep. But they argue, they bicker while Graham Chapman is trying to start an epic adventure. And in Life of Brian, the joke is it's the little people, while the biggest, the greatest story ever told is happening just over there. Yeah. Do you mind? I can't hear a word he's saying. Don't you do you mind me? I was talking to my husband. Well, go and talk to him somewhere else. I can't hear a bloody thing. It opens with a gag that made me think of Flying Circus. It does those super captions and it goes AD 33 about tea time hmm. and you're thinking that is a Monty Python's Flying Circus gag that is about tea time it's a British yeah. suburban attitude but also that would have been in Scott of the Sahara but in one of their sketches yeah, that was about yeah. a massive epic done at a small scale but the weird thing about this and why it works as a film is it also has that sweeping shot loads of extras there's a nice line in Michael Palin's diaries after they first after he and Terry first read out the three wise men opening to the group at a writing session he says, it's in the classic mould of the humour of frustration, irritation at being constantly diverted by trivia. And you go, yeah, yeah. that's the whole of Payne and Jones' yeah. stuff, isn't yeah. it? Just, oh, I've already gone left on the, on the second line. Now <laughs> I, I've got to try and rescue this. I, I, I love that, that the, the, the people in the way of it, and they won't <laughs> let this thing get started. And the basic joke is set up so beautifully by that Sermon on the Mount scene. They pull back, and it only I've seen this film a billion times. Mm. And last night when I watched it again, I'd not got that the first joke it does, once it actually starts, Jesus is up there and it's the people at the back of the thing. I always thought they couldn't hear. I thought that's what the joke was. It's not. The joke is they misinterpret. This first joke is the central theme of the film. I mean, that's a piece of writing. It goes, it doesn't matter what that guy up there says, someone will mishear and then they'll argue about who was right and who was wrong and that's the rest of history. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. And it's yeah. a really sophisticated gag, and it's thematically strong. And you go, this is a bunch of sketches that they bung together in a nice two weeks away somewhere sunny. And they've arranged them in such a clever order that the first proper sketch you get after the pre-titles bit, yeah. the first proper sketch you get is about the theme of the film, the thing they'll end up defending for the rest of their careers, saying it's not about Jesus. It's about people misinterpreting him. Hmm. And the first sketch, blessed are the cheesemakers, good joke, good pun, but it's thematically absolutely on message. Yeah. Brilliant bit of writing. See, if you haven't been going on, we'd have heard that, Big Nose. Can you remember when you first saw it? Uh, yes. I saw it through the rippled glass of my parents' <laughs> lounge door. Was it forbidden? Um, you not allowed in to see it? I, yeah, it was, it was, they weren't sure about it. They knew, they'd heard there was a bit where there was a nudie lady yeah. and it was on at nine o'clock on the, we had a video recorder that we shared with our next door neighbour on alternate weeks. <laughs> was it pushed through a yeah, yeah. Between I'm very, I'm very working class. That, um, that's amazing. Very, there's nothing more 1980s than that, is there? <laughs> um, so this would be what it would just have come out on video. So what, yeah. probably, well, back then that took a couple of years. So this was maybe, I don't know, like 1983. So I guess I would have been, what, two? <laughs> Uh, so I would have been sort of eight or nine, I guess. And I, and they, I think they were excited about watching it. And obviously that had 
I'd caught on to that in some way, and I wasn't aware of the TV show, obviously. So I didn't really know who these people were or what it was, but I knew that they were quite looking forward to it and I shouldn't be watching it, which is red rag to a bull. Yeah, of course. Uh, I both have gone up to bed and I crept back down and I watched it through the ripple glass in the the lounge door. Wow. And I think I only saw from the beginning up to the stoning scene. And I just thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. By virtue of the authority vested in me. Oh, we haven't started yet. Come on. And it's amazing, actually, how much of it made me laugh, bearing in mind I look at it now and go, there must have been a ton of gags going over my head. But there's enough, well, like you were saying earlier about silliness, there's enough kind of joy in what they're doing that carries along even... Yeah, absolutely. Particularly that that first scene, you know. Interesting thing about the the subject matter they've chosen. They've Mm. chosen the subject matter here of of the Bible. And it occurred to me that that this and... um, and Holy Grail have got something in common is these are stories you would have learned at school and there's a lot of school in Python the thing they've got all got in common is they all went to school Yeah. and there's there, there was originally a framing device in Life of Brian which was going to be a school and it was going to be the Master of St Brian as we read at the beginning there would be, a lot of that ended up in, in uh, Meaning of Life Oh Lord Oh Lord Oh you are so big but there's a very clear thing if you watch this as a kid what it's mainly about is teachers and being told to take stories seriously. And Cleese's stoning guy is a teacher. Who yeah. threw that? He's a PE teacher. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's everything about it is the language of headmasters and things. So I think you could watch that as a kid and not understand anything about, like, I don't know, the Pharisees. and Yeah, but you get the <laughs> dynamic. But you go, yeah, he's a yeah. teacher and he's cross with the kids for being naughty. Now look, no one is to stone anyone until I blow this whistle. Do you understand? Even, and I want to make this absolutely clear... Even if they do say Jehovah. And there's so much in it. Uh, Romano's Ite Domus. Yeah. It's literally, that's a teacher telling you off. And a lot of these sketches, you wonder what made... You've got six people who disagree about what's funny. Hmm. And the one thing they can all agree on, it seems, is school makes them laugh. And yeah. being told to take headmasters seriously. And it's a very good, basic thing running a lot way through this. There's an authority figure. You take the piss out of the teacher with a lisp, there's Pontius Pilate. There's so many things that make you go, oh, I'd get that if I was a kid. Yeah. Well, I certainly did, so it, it seems to have worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. It's efficient delivery method. <laughs> yeah. Thomas? Huh? Nominative? Huh? Go home, this is motion to wars, isn't it, boy? I mean, you recognise authority as a kid, don't you? But it's it's actually the, the, the real joy is in someone pointing out to you that these people might be ridiculous. They may be important... And we can't take their importance away from them, but they might be important and ridiculous. <laughs> yes. Which is where you get Cleese's stoning guy and Romano's Ite Domum and Willis Wadwick and anything else. Well, and then obviously the, the other thing about the stoning thing that is very, very funny is the women in beards. Yes. Yes. Which is a weird... I mean, that's a weird gag that only exists in that form because it's Python. I mean, that's one of... There's a few things about it where you watch it now and you go, OK, obviously some things have changed in the last 40 years. Yeah. But that's the uh, such a strange gag where you go, because they have taken the decision sort of almost throughout, not quite, there are obviously female roles in it, but to take most of the female roles and play them as men, you've got a gag where it's men pretending to be women <laughs> pretending to be men. And I remember yeah. that was one of the things I was watching as a kid and going, why does that guy think those men are women? (laughs) That that one puzzled me because I couldn't understand that there was a second level of joke going on, which is these these men and women are men. But without that, you wouldn't get, sorry, I thought we'd started. Which is uh, still one of my favourite line deliveries of all time. Who threw that stone? Come on. Sorry, I thought we started. Go to the back. 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and also you get uh, that lovely thing of uh, there's 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 beard sellers and things. It sets you up a world that is obviously they're they're playing this fragile game of of making it realistic and then making it ludicrous at the same time. And it's constantly pushing at the edges mm. of Python is surreal and stupid and things. And they're pushing at the edges of it and they always push to just the right edge. Yeah. There's, a, there's a couple of moments they misstep it, but most of the time that that world holds. For Absolutely, them. and it's a very good example of how ludicrous you can make something because it's not got airplane jokes in it. It's not got a joke on everything. No. And one of the reasons I think it's so well regarded is it is disciplined. They've got edges to their their rules that you don't cross. Someone can sell you a beard, but he is a beard well, seller. He has a life. There's always a backing of fact against it. And in, in this mm. case, obviously, you've got kind of biblical fact. You've got the, the writings and you've got what we know about history. And like you say, there's a very silly gag in there with a man selling beards. But what it's actually set against the backdrop is that only men can go to Stonings. Yeah. Uh, and the same with the Sermon on the Mount. You've got a very silly sketch going on at the back of the crowd. But what you're actually watching is... Jesus yeah. given the Sermon on the Mount. So it's always got this kind of backbone of structural and factual rigidity against which they can be silly, which I think gives them a greater licence to do more ridiculous things. It's it gives them an authority. One of the things that's always nice about Python is because certainly Palin did history. They, they, they're clever kids. And this has got a real feeling that they've gone in. You feel from the beginning that they've investigated this. They're not doing... They don't do the nativity play. They don't do the stuff you would have done at school, at junior school. They do university-level stuff about occupied territory. You get the feeling that someone has read up what Palestine was like at this time, and it just aches with those references. Oh, they had. There's a thing in, in Palin's diaries again where he goes around to Eric Idle's house in St John's Wood to be introduced to yet another Rolling Stone um, <laughs> and says in Eric Idle's office there's loads of books on on the history of the time, basically. Yeah. And also they all went away and reread the Gospels. That was the first thing they did is they went, let's read the Gospels, get re-familiarise ourselves with this story. So they took it very seriously. And at the last pass as well, they hired a screening room and they sat and watched loads of historical epics like Ben-Hur and Barabbas and The Greatest Story Ever Told and things like that. So they properly immersed themselves in the material to go, we've got to take this seriously in order to make the funniest thing we can out of it that still coheres. It's a trick that I think works with, with a lot of stuff. That I've felt it with Bill, i felt it with Horrible Histories. There's a thing, if you're going to be silly, it's quite nice to persuade people that you're not just being silly, that you're qualified to be silly. Yeah. Because it gets you, it gets you a pass. If someone just comes on and just wiggles their arse at you, you might go, oh, God. Whereas if they wiggle their arse and they say, oh, but I've researched this, this backdrop I'm wiggling my arse about <laughs> is thoroughly accurate. Yeah, I think, yeah, you, you need some sort of backbone. You need a world in which this ridiculousness can operate. Otherwise, it sort of operates without boundaries. And it really quickly stops being funny because you go, you can do anything. Yes. Whereas... If you can only push against the edges, if there are edges to push against, then that's what the facts give you. That's what, you know, the Bible story gives you. It's not, it's clearly not about Jesus. You, you know, in the first two scenes, you see Jesus, yes. he's someone else. But what it does is, if those same milestones that you know from that story were to occur in someone else's life, living at exactly the same time, how would that play out when they're not special? They're yeah. not important. They don't have any skills or powers. It's sort of... Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting allegory that only works because there's a factual basis. But that factual basis, I think, makes it... It's probably what makes it dangerous. And I often thought about this, that the thing that's dangerous about this isn't it says that... It doesn't say Jesus was stupid. It says something which is really dangerous, which is that anyone could have been mistaken for Jesus, which I think is a really, really dangerous thing for religion to hear. As you go, well, he could be the son of God. But what we're saying here is that people could easily mistake the wrong person for the son of God. 
And that is a really dangerous idea to introduce. And the way it does this is because it's done this enormous amount of research, it said, well, when Jesus was around, there were other troublesome agitators. And there were many other prophets. And you go, well, this is factually correct, or you've researched this. And that there was a hunger for a saviour like this. That's why he was called the Messiah. This is factually correct. We've done the history. And it does something, which, again, I was, I was watching it with a critical eye for the first time in ages. And I went, I timed it. And there's nothing about, but there's Jesus at the beginning. There's nothing about religion until about 50 minutes in. The first 45 to 50 minutes are about unoccupied country. They are about political solutions. They're about terrorism. They're about politics. It sets up without any mention of Jesus or miracles or any of those jokes. It holds off. And you can bet that when they were sorting the script out, they were binning all the stuff about turning water into wine and your first 20 jokes you'd think of to do in a Jesus epic. They're all in the bin. And the first discipline, 50 minutes of an hour and a half film, is about the politics of the Middle East. So it's utterly real. And it goes, and then there's one moment, there's an incredible bit. He falls on top of Michael Palin's boring prophet. Yeah. And that's the point at which it starts being about religion. And it's about, there's probably about 35 minutes of the, the thing to go then. It only clicks into gear when it's got all its ducks in a row. It's incredibly disciplined. Again, like the first moment where they say this is about misinterpretation, he falls on the prophet and he says some stuff and then he stops talking and they start filling in what they think he yeah. was saying. That is just, as far as the Christian church goes, that's dynamite because that's really naughty. They're the naughtiest boys in the class because they said to their RE teacher, maybe people just made this up. And that's why it gets banned in Finland. But again, it gives them a sort of a licence because what he doesn't do at that point, does it, no way does it say, oh, look, this guy could be Jesus or this guy's standing in his way. It's yeah. not Jesus he knocks off. You see yeah. five, six preachers up there who could not be more wildly different. In the case of Gilliam's character, I mean, could not be more wildly different from any other human. <laughs> That, but, uh, you know, it's not about. It's, it's brilliant. Gilliam's I mean, great in this film. Gilliam was always, and from from watching it as a child <laughs> through Ripple Glass, he, the the thing it probably says a lot about some of the characters I've gone on to play. But um, <laughs> it was always his stuff. I loved his prophet, the the weird gyrating, completely painted in white mud prophet. And Babylon shall ride forth on a free-headed serpent. And throughout the land shall be a great rubbing of pots. The jailer who pretends that he can't talk. <laughs> we, we got lumps of it around the back. I know, it's tiny. Even the guy at the beginning who goes, hmm, about he's going to end here at the earth. He can, every time you give him one line, he makes the most of it. And it's like a kind of a slight, a, a grotesque. He yeah. plays them all like different forms of gargoyle. <laughs> I just find they draw your eye. I was like, God, that's fascinating. I sort of want to see 15 minutes about him. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah he, he always pulled me in. He's playing the little guys from the corner of the manuscript. He's fascinated yeah. by this. Yes. Or bro- the Bruegel guys, the guys who are, are wheeling a barrel of shit hmm. past something in a Bruegel painting. They're his guys. Yeah. And he's always in the margins of the other performances. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The thing that I love about this is that everyone's doing their best thing. Hmm. All the authority, all the teachers are Cleese. He's playing all the centurions, all the, so they've given him that. Chapman is never better. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely lovable and empathetic. All the stuff he could do, the soft eyes, the, the gentleness, the, the interesting sort of wronged intelligence, all the stuff he does. Jones is doing his brilliant array of, uh, of sort of grotesques mm. and amazing women. Palin has got three or four people who are all in the same key, which is nice and wet. Yes. <laughs> Nicest, wettest is one oh, yeah. of his... <laughs> Crucifixion. Yes. Good. Out of the door, line on the left, one cross each. Next... And he even gets to do, he's the prophet he knocks over, even, he's just done ripping yarns, and he gets to do the really boring man from ripping yarns. He gets to yeah. do Eric Althwaite and the rumours of things going astray. <laughs> As little Raphael Matt. <laughs> that wasn't scripted, was it? They just, they just turned a camera on him and said, just go, just be go. Boring. Be boring. Be boring. And Eric Idle is doing a range of, of cheeky... Yeah, cheeky uh, cooking chat. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, I only realised the first time. Uh, this will sound really stupid. You know, you know Mr Cheeky, who's all the way through this? Crucifixion? Uh, no, freedom. What? Uh, freedom for me. They said I hadn't done anything so I could go free and live on an island somewhere. Him, the cheeky guy. Yeah. He doesn't sing Always Look no. on the Right Side of Life. It's no, another... I didn't realise. ...identical <laughs> cheeky like, man. Where's his hat gone? Why is his hair so long? Oh, of course, he's been freed, isn't he? It's another guy. <laughs> oh, there's a reason for this, isn't is there? there? Yeah, it was, he's playing... His, the character on the cross is in the script as Mr Frisbee the Third, <laughs> right? But he did it, and he sang it in his voice. Yeah. And then when they looked at the playback, he went, this isn't funny. 
Oh. I've got to do this as a cheeky guy, haven't I? So he re-recorded the vocal oh. in a... He put he set up three mattresses and put a microphone in the window in wherever it was they were filming. Tunisia, was it? Yeah. Um, oh. And re-recorded the vocal in there with that always look on that version. <laughs> and went, that's better. That's what makes it funny. Oh, because it, it was sincere in the first place. Because it is. It's a review sketch ending. Mm. How, do, how do you end a review when it's a load of sketches? You end with yeah. a song. It's the only way to, to signify it's time to go home. So as, as this is the best assembled load of sketches they ever got, but they still mm. need to end like a proper review with the song. So I suppose you're ending with another piece of, I mean, the thing Eric Idle's amazing at, kind of lightly pastiche 30s jaunty music, like he yeah. did for One Foot in the Grave. Is that? Yeah, he said he wanted it to be it sound like a Disney song. That's why he put the whistling in it. Oh, OK. Now, that sort of makes sense. I mean, it works so well. It's a weird because they kind of always do a rug pull ending. I think because there's something, <laughs> I was about to say, there's something very final about being crucified, but I think that's a given, isn't it? <laughs> um, but there is. It, so it's kind of a satisfying ending not in the, the same time on the like there's an extra act you're not expecting <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, never, I never finished it spoilers. I never got around to the end I, mean, I'll, I'll, I should check that out but um, I think because it's because it is a crucifixion and it is a play of sorts on the bible story a crucifixion is in one hand very final and a very good ending but on the other hand like you say it's very open and so it's the way of going as far as our narrative goes this is the end yeah you mm. put a song on it and you leave that you leave them hanging there on the, the, the hillside but you know it's the end of the film it's it's a great bit of structure you think baseball is rubbish Let's talk about the story. The story is basically one that we all know, but it's not all that as a story, is it? Because this is a series of sketches, and they've all said that we wrote a series of sketches based on the story that we knew, which eventually coalesced into a thing which has the shape of a story. And it's only got that satisfying ending because they've put a song there, because it just says, a song means this is the end, that's Mm. it. So it doesn't really adhere to the rules of narrative at all, but it's very satisfying, it's the perfect shape. It is, and I think in part it's because of what you bring to it. That's whilst, like you say, actually for a huge chunk of the film, it doesn't have any nods to religion, let alone to Jesus. It starts with the scene where Jesus is the baby. It picks up with the Sermon on the Mount and it ends with the crucifixion. And so you go, this is a film which has told the story of this guy's life, which is an allegory for Jesus in which the guy in the stable next door has similar beats happen to him. And you sort of fill it in as being a story that runs along parallel to the story you all know, to yeah. some greater or less degree from the Bible. It doesn't do that at all. No. In fact, outside of those beats, hardly anything happens in there. But it, it feels like something that's familiar. And so you kind of read it as being a bit of a classic narrative, whereas in fact it is, like you say, it's a, it's a sketch show. But it feels really satisfying, to me at least, far more so than you know Holy Grail, yeah. which, yeah. apart from the ending where it deliberately cuts itself dead, is far more of a traditional bit of storytelling up to that point but doesn't feel as satisfying yeah there's something brilliant about that balance which again i only spotted for the first time just just looked at the clock and went okay this is the religion elements the bits where he gets mistaken for a prophet are quite a long way in the build-up before then is all hard politics about being in an occupied country all the 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 judean people's front (laughs) stuff (laughs) that turns it and that is (laughs) the great thing about that that is still absolutely the best skewering of what happens in political movements 
Yep. No one's done a better one of those since. It is. That's still that's momentum in the rest of the Labour Party now, isn't it? We're yeah. all on the same side. We hate each other and we yeah. don't agree on anything. <laughs> the only people we ate more than the Romans are the fucking Judean people's front. Yeah. 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 And the Judean popular people's front. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Split. Split. And the people's front of Judea. Yeah. Splitters. The people's front of Judea. Splitters. We're the people's front of Judea. Every one of those gags works and those voices which were very, very of their time. That is the time of a terrorist movement movements and unions and hmm. that, that sort of like bullshit, self-righteous voice. That's completely a classic Python thing. They've, they've ported that in from the newspapers and bunged it in 33 AD. There's something so good and so human in the way they've drawn those characters, especially Reg. Yeah. John Cleese's Reg in there, <laughs> who's so good. And when they get to think of what the Romans have ever done for us, you just realise all these classic sketches have become the byword for mm. ingratitude yeah. <laughs> and, and sort of splintering. And that, that thing of breaking up and, and smashing yourself apart and fighting with the people who agree with you is what happens on the internet now. Any group of people will just immediately factionalise and, and end up hating each other more than they hate the enemy. But all that stuff is really solid. And then Brian runs through that for the first 45, 50 minutes as a kid who wants to oust the Romans. I hate the Romans already. Yeah. And that's not in the Bible. That's not Christ in the Bible. It says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He's not there to overthrow the Romans. It's another really clever bit of writing from them to say he's not Jesus. Because hmm. his story, until someone mistakes him for Jesus, is nothing to do with religion and God and things. He is the wrong guy in every single way. Yeah, and also you get a sense it's not like this is a, a lifelong pursuit from him. He's seen someone who's in one of these factions that we quite fancy, <laughs> and he's found out that his mum got knocked up by a Roman. So it's kind of a new hobby horse for him that he's like, I've decided I hate the Romans now and you're nice. How much? <laughs> and that lasts. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It, it's, a, it's a kind of a fad that he just you know, takes on with zeal. <laughs> well, there's a gag because almost immediately before the, the religion thing kicks, in. Mm. There's that lovely moment where, where he gets kidnapped by Gilliam's special effects sequence. <laughs> yes. Um, which obviously does a brilliant thing, like, like Gilliam's things do. They, they hijack the film from it, like the Crimson Perm. Yes, yes, yes. It's the same thing. But it happens at this point about 45 minutes in, and you realise it's a brilliant He's abducted from the top of a tower and deposited at the bottom of the tower. But he only ran up the tower to escape from the people who end up at the bottom of the tower anyway. Yeah. So it has no effect on a chase or anything. No. It has been put in there to say, to be honest, the clutch is down at the moment. With, the plot's not really kicked in yet. Yeah. We can do anything. It's a great joke about the inconsequentiality of all these sketches. Yeah, absolutely. But also the inconsequentiality of most middle beats in an action film. <laughs> I mean, effectively, he's a bus jumping over the missing bit of highway. But yeah. in this version of it, he falls into a spaceship, which then crash lands into the ground. The other thing that we have to remember about this is, is a parody of biblical epics mm. and about the, the pomposity of saying this is better than a normal story because this one's about God. Yeah. And you get away when if you make a pompous, ponderous epic that somehow you're given a free pass because it's about Jesus. This is about their childhood, it's about school, about Sunday school, about sitting in church and it's about watching those ponderous epics probably the, the Saturday pictures with John Wayne in the robe or whatever the awful yeah. films when you get six people and you get and say okay what do we all agree is funny there will be cultural things they all share and they obviously all watched Spartacus and, and Ben-Hur and things because it even ends with the Spartacus scene the I'm yeah, yeah. I'm Brian, I'm Brian they, well that's the thing one. as well that you go 
that feel like I think there's so many things which are in Brian which have become regarded as such classics and therefore so quoted so aped that there are almost things that people go oh the, the things the ones that people get tired of or, or people get tired of quoting you know with with the holy grail it's people who say knee there's kind yeah. of yeah. an immediate eye rolling here we go but the thing is these are the first renderings of all of those things no one up until that point no one had done a joke where they do Spartacus but with a different name yes <laughs> and it, it's I, I, you know I'm Brian and so is my, my wife, wife is it, quite it, <laughs> that's a line that's got everything in it. They mm. give some good lines to Bernard McKenna. He gets some. Yeah. Ter- they're, they're supporting people that are really good in this. But I'm Brian, and so my wife. It's absolutely. But I always there's a f- very few films, and it tends to be comedies more than any. Where I wish I, there was a device where I could wash my brain yeah. and just watch them all for the first. I mean, I know we all feel this uh, as writers as well. Yeah, You'd yeah. love to be able to just read a draft of something you've written as an audience. It's very hard to watch this now and imagine that it didn't exist before. Yeah. And yeah. imagine how brilliant it must have seemed, how inspired it must have been. Yeah. And um, brave as well. I mean, it was a it was a tough thing to take on, wasn't it? I mean, I sort of wonder whether it did it feel in 1979 like Four Lions felt to us when it came out, which was oh my god, you've done what? You know, yeah. this could be dangerous. I but, think it, it, but we know it will be funny. I think it must have done. I think I don't think they could have been oblivious to what the reception would be from some quarters, particularly because they go, this is a film set concurrently with the life of Jesus in the same locales that there were going to be people who would judge it without watching it, which is where most of the criticism yeah. came from. Famously, what Eric Idle says, we read the Gospels and realised there was nothing funny in Jesus. Hmm. And also, those jokes will have been done. Everyone who's drawn dicks on the Bible in the back of class will have done every joke about Jesus. This yeah. is a th- story that's been around and been forced on board school children for ages. All those jokes will have been done. That will be the school review gags. They've been those and gone, we've got a cleverer one, without realising that as far as the people who are going to criticise it are concerned, they needn't have bothered doing that. They might as well have done Jesus is a dick story. Yeah, they could have done a hatchet job and got exactly the same reaction. In fact, they did something that was very clever and only tangentially causing the sort of issues and offence that everyone was imagining in it. But weirdly, at the same time... What, what this thing is, as I was saying earlier, is is way more dangerous than just saying Jesus was an idiot. Because you say Jesus was an idiot and, and hmm. that affects nothing because you can just dismiss that and say these people are being stupid. In fact, the argument they kept making in the when everyone was attacking it said this is a third-rate film. And they go, no, the problem is it's not a third-rate film. The problem is it's a very, very intelligent film about, about how uh, a simple message can be distorted, about the Chinese whispers process hmm. of all culture. It's a really intelligent film about that. It's also got some stupid jokes in it, but the, the central idea is very clever and actually quite threatening it's a, it's it's something that was in 19th century theology that threatened to wreck the church forever people were losing their faith around about this kind of stuff going well what if what if we just made this up yeah it's a very dangerous thing to be found saying and it's very odd that the people who protested about it just kept banging on about it being a rude film about jesus you go we've well, lost that argument already you could say it's dangerous if you want mm. to what's interesting as well is that that wasn't sort of flash in the pan this doesn't feel right in 1979 but the clock ticks on and by by 1980, suddenly that's all gone away. The Ferrari sort of remained. In fact, um, was it? God, I should... Um, someone will look up his name. and If a different voice cuts in here and says a lady's name, uh, that's because I've forgotten the name of the very good actress who plays Judith in it. Sue, Sue Jones, Jones Davis. Davis. Yes. Right. Who was Chris Langham's other half. That's right. She? And yeah. became, but became mayor of Aberystwyth, wasn't yes. it? 2009. And so one often of, happens. And one of the first things she did was unban Life of Brian. <laughs> And put on a premiere 30 years Which after is it the came out. Punchline, Which is brilliant, isn't it? And you could, but you still had to do that 30 years down the line, you know. Presumably there would have been a, bit, a little bit of um, quite lax paperwork in there and maybe it just never got unbanned. But equally, it was still thought to have 
caused the fence. That's places we still can't watch it. Well, is, that great, is that great story that it got banned in Norway and not in Sweden? And the publicity for Sweden was a film so good it's banned in Norway. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is a lot because you're setting tribes off against each other yeah. again, which is just again perfect yeah, for that. Absolutely in key. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So Judean people's front all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get? I'm sure the answer to this is no. But just in case the answer to this is yes, did you get any shit for Bill? Um, no, we a few people. We actually we did worry about the Catholic things because we're going. We're saying that the the Catholics are the, are the baddies here, but we were going. This is a story set in England during Tudor times, and at that point, that was the great yes. rivalry. Right. And as soon as you set it here, and then you've got uh, you know King Philip II of Spain wanting to take over, and, and the various attempts, some friendly, some by marriage, some by force, and some by armada, to try and. <laughs> Uh, cajole his way into the bosom of uh, the sort of English ruling classes. Um, you kind of couldn't avoid that. Uh, the only thing that we did was we did play up the fact that the kind of uh, the, the the code when they realised that these people were King Philip's men all along is that they're wearing big red crucifixes. That's the only sort of real overt nod to yeah. Catholicism in it. But um, also, it's it was silly enough that. I think it was forgiven some of its sins. And also, it was set in a chunk of history where nobody really knows what happens, particularly around Shakespeare. So we got a bit of licence to kind of go, this is... This is a black hole into which we are putting some stuff that we are not saying is true. There was, no, there was nothing there that we were trying to suggest is what happens. You've got the same lucky void that they've got with Jesus's life, which yeah. is, there is a point between birth and sort of, I don't know, late teenager, where no one has a fucking clue yeah. what either Shakespeare or Jesus did. It's Absolutely. just not there, is it? Yeah, and, and there's various kind of... There's a lot of conjecture about it, which, you know, gave us some fodder for jokes, some of which stayed in, some of which we had to trim out. And that was exactly the same as you know, what they were facing with, with Jesus, which they cover brilliantly with a song yes. a song about masturbating I mean our first draft of Bill we were just like well surely we'll just say that Shakespeare was masturbating through that yeah. but then we realised that kind of you know Brian yeah. had done that and so we, we also went, for the audience you're aiming at probably, yeah, yeah yeah no it was going to be problematic I'm glad, I'm glad we didn't I'm glad that I talked Ben out of that draft <laughs> How do you do that? How do you herd the cats? Because the thing that I think is interesting about Python, which is that they've got this astonishing reputation for being a group. They didn't do all that much together. They didn't stay together. The, the, the group didn't hold together. It was like four years and then a gap and then sort of another five years and a couple of projects. They were all obviously pulling in different directions at all, at all times. And when they get their, their miracle, their one-off, their lightning in a bottle film that actually has a core like this... Hmm. That's regard. You can hear in the way that Terry Jones talks about it, and how Cleese talks about it, how delighted they were. They managed to hold together, yeah. and and point in one direction. How do you do that with with your guys? Um, the kind of I think we, there are every now and then there's the odd phase where you go through where you know someone's back is slightly put up or something. But it, it just I think one we really early on. Thankfully, there's been people who've gone there before, like Python, and you can yeah. see the pitfalls. And I think we're very open with each other, and we know that you know when we, there are disagreements about a particular joke or a particular story, that there's never any malice in them. It's just everyone trying to chase down and find the best version. I think the reason that we tried to engineer things to keep working on together wasn't because we didn't actually like working together, but we thought this dynamic worked, and so we'd chase it down. It was as much about we loved loved spending time together and we'd formed this friendship and we wanted an excuse the, the, the best rendition of that friendship was us sitting together in a green room between takes <laughs> and, a, and so we wanted to engineer that situation again and that 
almost became uh, as much of a driver as the product itself. So I think it's it's like um, when we get to shoot. We, you know, we've been lucky and we've been able to shoot a project together every year since since we met. So sort of eleven years now. That even though they're tremendously hard work and they're very long hours, it feels in some weird way those six to eight weeks feel like a little holiday where you go and hang out with your yeah. friends. <laughs> What's more likely that you can see ghosts or that you're still suffering from severe concussion? Concussion. Exactly. You don't just walk away Robin, from an accident like that. You've been here a while. Have you ever seen anything like this before? One time, yes, uh, but it was a bear. Oh, because bear was like, and I'm like, ah! and then he's like, because he normally. You had to be there. We all go off and do projects separately between the two, so we get to sort of stretch that muscle. But when we get back together, it's like. It's fun, but also the stress that you get when you're trying to push something to fruition is shared by six other people. Yeah. And so it also, it, it's a, a pressure valve. It, it sort of, everyone shares, uh, everyone shares the work, everyone shares the pressure. And, you know, everyone shares that, that sense of fun that we get when we're, when we're on set together. Well, do you know what well, we remember? We, we had a conversation after we came in to do one episode of Yonderland. Yeah. And it was us two and the producers and the six of you in a room. And every time an idea came up, the idea would go round the room and the six of you would work it, sometimes in character. And we both came away from that meeting going, that's what it must have been like to be in a room with the Pythons. It's <laughs> fucking wonderful. Everyone knows who's going to be who, who's going to be the centurion, who's going to be... You've got roles you like to play and, and, and to try voices out. It's great. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, with the casting of things, it's amazing how naturally that happens now. Sometimes we don't even say it. When we were writing Bill, we knew that Simon was going... I think we'd written, like, three lines of the Earl of Croydon. <laughs> and then I think by the fourth line, I was like... And then Simon could say... And me and Ben, and then we'd never have the conversation going, this would be Simon, we just knew. Yeah. And then every, that sort of 50% of it, and the other 50% is purely schedule, where they go, right, well, you can't play that character because you'd be in makeup, which is how all of the casting was done on Horrible Histories, you know, Car wow. Caroline Norris. Really? And, yeah, I mean, basically, Caroline, a producer, would sit down and, <laughs> and go, right... Um, um, that person can't do that sketch and that sketch because they're being shot on the same day and they'd be in makeup for the, the third one. So that would have to be Matt and that would have to be Larry. And so it sometimes meant that you were given really interesting roles where you go, that's not a natural fit right. for me, you know. This is supposed to be a, a handsome general. That should be Ben, but he's in makeup. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my damnedest. <laughs> <laughs> and, you is know, this, is this why Matt always went for the most elaborate makeup and hair? So it could, be, it could get out of the most sketches. Um, yeah, I, 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 it quite could have been. Actually, I think he's learned his, his lesson on that one. I think when his um, choice of facial hair and wig for his elder in Yonderland taught him never to never to aim too high. It was a remarkable tableau, a, you know, seeing seeing you guys on set for that, where between takes, where you're all sitting in chairs barely moving your heads even to look at each other because you were wearing these gigantic fucking constructions. Matt said he wanted to look like an ice cream. <laughs> He thought it would be funny. He goes, his whole head just looked like an ice cream. And it was a really funny look, but it oh. was torturous to be put in, onto. And it was always, no matter how well it was done, and thankfully our makeup team are brilliant, but um, it was always, you know, within an inch of just collapsing like an ice cream. In fact, <laughs> yeah. it's, basically they'd gone full method. What you appear to have simulated in, in, in finding a, a comic team to work with is not the way 
isn't the tone of say Life of Brian. It's almost like the mood they were in when they were doing Life of Brian, which is they were all they'd all gone off and done other projects. They were satisfied creatively, and they'd all come together. And this is one of the few times when you see them hanging out. They look like they're really good friends. When you yeah. see the offset things, they look like they're glad to be together. And it comes across on screen that they're enjoying each other's company. There's no fractiousness. There's no rivalry like there is in the latest sort of series of, of the TV show and things. They look happy to be together. And it's, it's, it's joyous to watch this because they're not as cold as they were when they were doing Holy Grail. Yeah. They're not Ooh, as right. old and entrenched yeah. as they were when they're doing Meaning of Life. They're not fighting <clears> for their sketches. They look, like a, they look like a gang of people you'd like to hang out with. They look like mates. Yeah. I think there's something in... There's a joy in tone when people are having a good time. I think it can go too far. I think often when people... It comes across on screen that people are having a good time. It shows in ways like there is a huge amount of improvisation, <laughs> which can sometimes be a good thing and can sometimes you know, tread on the toes of narrative and well-written dialogue. And I know we've had conversations numerous times about, about that, that line between you know, trusting a gag and trusting the thing that's fresh. And you go, yeah. the thing I've heard 10 times feels less funny to me than the thing I just came up with. It's probably not the case. Um, and I think they were clearly sticking with a story which had been quite thoroughly researched and laid out, but they were having fun with it. They weren't getting carried away. And I think, you know, that that's sort of what we try to do. There is always messing around and there is always a bit of improvisation. But I think it's it, it would be, um, with, with our troupe, it's far less than people might uh, imagine it is because we've, we kind of, you have a faith in everyone's material. Well, there's a wonderful thing that Carrie Ed Lloyd said when she came on our podcast and she went, well, improvisation and writing are very similar. You're making an idea that wasn't there before. And it never occurred to me that people always say, oh, there's writing and there's improvisation. You kind of want to scream, they're the same thing. Mm. All that writing is, is improvisation you did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, it, and and pe- people, we've had this problem with, with stuff where, where a lot of improvisation happens on a script and you go, well, genuinely, all these jokes are really funny two weeks ago. You've just lost faith in them because familiarity kills jokes. Jokes are all about surprise. You're no longer being surprised by the script. It's far too easy to go, we'll just go with the new stuff and we'll forget the fact that two weeks ago when we were improvising this script, this had us doubled over laughing. Well, we we gave a line to um, Simon in Bill where his character says, well, writing's easy, isn't it? It's just talking but written down. <laughs> but there is, there is something in that. You go, at some point, you've, you've, you've originated an idea, particularly because of the way the six of us work. I mean, we, we go off and write scripts individually or in, in our pairs, but everything always starts with the six of us in the room. So a lot of the time when you're generating those ideas, you are kind of bouncing off each other and, and play-acting and literally improvising something yeah. what you get to do is ideally is have the best of both worlds where you've got the joy of that improvisation but you've got to refine and hone it and also you know a lot of the time an improvisation is five minute version of a thing that's best in you know 30 yeah. seconds and so you get to hone it down but you keep the germ of that thing you've come up with there is of course the one wonderful bit of improvisation stroke corpsing in life of brian as well which is the which is biggest dickers. Oh God! <laughs> which is and, and and in Palin in his diaries again, he says I I made up some absolutely appalling names, including the unforgivable <laughs> Incontinentia buttocks, which is the one that made it to the print. <laughs> he has a wife, you know. You know what she's called? She's called Incontinentia. Incontinentia buttocks. Damn! What is all this? This is an astonishing thing to do in a film, is to go, let's do... A, a, let's just relax back and do some corpsing. Hmm. Let's see if we can make 
that bunch of guys in again because they're it's dressed an as soldiers. Moment, isn't they're it? dressed as soldiers. It is what you do to the guards at Buckingham Palace. Yeah. There are people there who mustn't laugh, and we're going to play with the primal thing of if I say a silly name, hmm. and it's basic, but it's joyous because they're going really close. Again, we should talk about Terry Jones's direction, which is absolutely wonderful because he just does two shots. Four shots, six shots, and occasionally in for a close two yeah. for something like the corpsing to make people to sit to the reaction. It's all about the interaction of these people who are friends. Yeah. And he, he puts he one shot. Absolutely. He goes, well, you're going to do some funny things and I'm going to put it on the screen. And I think also, you know, I suppose he's relatively early in his career and so there's only so much of the sort of showmanship of directing that you feel entirely comfortable with doing. You know, you kind of better to do the thing you know well. Yeah. particularly when you're burning through time and money, as you always are on you know, a feature. And so he gets coverage. Yeah. He gets coverage of great performances, and he gets all the shots you need. There's never a gag in there that falls flat because you go, that needs to be on the wide, but clearly you've only got it in the yeah. time. It's yeah. always exactly the right shot. There's one thing which I noticed. I've often said this is quite a good demonstration of how to direct a comedy film because it's not very flashy, and they're not intercutting between mm. different performances. It's a, it's a record of a lovely live performance. It's a live show. Yeah. Um, but the one, it's, it's Palin's Ex Leper, which is filmed so beautifully with him dancing through that yeah. that crowd. And the guy's coming backwards in a steady cam or whatever. That's a beautifully shot piece of comedy. And there's no reason for Palin to be dancing about. No. It's but just it's, got, it's a perfect amount of energy at that point in the film as yeah. well. It does. It sort of G's you up. It, 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 and I love the fact he dances in, you know, once he's, he's got up, he dances into it throughout it, dances out around a giant turd in the street. <laughs> it's a kind of, it's a seamless... Uh... It's beautiful. And they've, they've done that beggar scene in Jabberwocky already, mm. but it's done sitting down. Yeah. And it's got a completely different energy to it. And it's the same thing about how to be a beggar in a, in a historical city. Mm. And the Palin's one, it's one of the reasons you remember it. It's his motion and his movement. And it's beautifully shot. Yeah. The camera's constantly in motion. And there's, there's not a lot of that in there. But when it's done, it's really yeah. well judged. I think there's some, there's some lovely moments of visual flourish. One of my favourites is after the, the spaceship crash <laughs> in, the, in this biblical epic, after the spaceship crash, when he climbs out of the hole. And the guy says, oh, you lucky bugger. Uh, he spots that the guards are coming. And obviously, as they cut away to the guards, they've cut back to him, they've set him with an enormous amount of dust. Mm. So as he turns and pelts out of screen, he leaves a kind of cloud of dust wow. in his own shape behind. And it's like something out of a Chuck Jones cartoon. <laughs> it's such a lovely little moment. Wow. And I think th there's tiny little moments like that where you kind of get a free laugh throughout. And I think the other star of the film is uh, ADR. Yeah. I've, ne I've rarely seen a film oh, yeah. which does it so well. Obviously, there's been, you know, they, they did test screenings and everything, and there were, there were famously scenes that were cut. But how seamless they are, but also, and I think this is something that, that we found as we went through, particularly Yonderland, because we have puppets and you have the scope to do that a lot more when you've got, um, you know, lip sync, which isn't the same as, as human lip sync. But they found there's space in here for more laughs. Yeah. There's a free joke there. The fact that the cockerel's not a cockerel, it's someone doing an impression of a cockerel <laughs> yes. that you hear. And it's equally, every... stitching things back together, you know, yeah. well, because the, 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 the sequence with Otto's famously cut, yeah. but at the end, you can't have the end of the film with Mandy coming in to tell off Brian for crucifying himself because she's in amongst the sea of dead bodies. Yeah. So they had to have the final shot of a thread of the film that's been cut. Yeah. So when this character comes in, 
he's got to introduce himself when he's supposed to be a callback. So he's only got two lines in the whole film and all of them are ADR. I think that's Palin doing it. It's not even... <laughs> no, it's not, no, it's not. It's Palin being Otto, <laughs> isn't it? I noticed that for the first time last night. And the, but And also that joke, I remember the Otto scene's been removed and for very good, for really obvious reasons, it would slow the action up yeah. exactly at that point. Otto scene's been taken out. The Suicide joke, Squad joke still works. Yeah. I'd remembered for some reason, because I'd seen the deleted scene so many times, that Otto was in it more. But no, no just, that, that's his introduction. It's just yeah. Suicide Squad. But weirdly, Suicide Squad f- feels like a payoff of the Judean People's Front. Yeah. There are lunatic fringe groups here. That's I, another reason why you don't need Otto. You've already set that joke up. It's funny you say that because I always thought as well, it's only after I remember watching it as a kid and then watching it again like as a teenager, I was like... Watching the end of this film now, I can't remember when these guys come in. Yeah. But I d- always <laughs> imagined that that was a callback. And also how the thing with them uh, tapping their feet along to the song at the end is a different joke because yeah. in the scene that's cut, it's they commit suicide, but they don't. They all pretend to commit suicide. <laughs> and so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's kind of a callback to a joke which you haven't seen, yeah. which becomes a different joke yeah. where they're all dead, but the, the song's so good that they move their feet anyway. <laughs> but so they, sort of... they get to have, I mean, it's a real cake and issue. They get to have about 60% of the good jokes on that cut scene. Yeah. They've, they've pushed in to the ADR. They've boiled it down. The thing that's worth saying about that climax as well is even though it isn't a real climax, it's just the end of the thing and it's mm. sort of... The build towards it as a piece of plotting the drops of plot that fall into those sketches that start with release Brian. Yeah. Release Brian! Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Release Brian! Very well, that's it. So, we, uh, we have got a Brian, sir. What? Are you just sending for crucifixion, sir? Uh, oh, wait, wait. Very well. I shall release Brian! You're really yearning for him to be saved. There's a series of things where you go, he might he might live. You know how this film ends. Hmm. You know it's going to end up with him being crucified. But for some reason, you're watching this silly load of sketches and you go, they might save him. And you really care. Some of that's Graham Chapman's performance. And some of it is they've managed to do... There's a lot of unfairnesses at the end. The same unfairness that got him mistaken for the Messiah in the first place gets the wrong person saved, gets Mr Cheeky saved. And yeah. the relief, Brian, I thought of it as a bit like there's a great bit in Toy Story 1 where they've set this big thing up where Woody's got a match that's going to light the rocket that's going to save them, and the match just gets blown out. Yeah. It's a lovely bit of Pixar storytelling. And they do this thing where they go, he could be released because his name's got a lispy Hmm. letter in it. But he's too busy telling off people (laughs) (laughs) to listen when they say, right, who's called this? (laughs) You silly sods. It's because it's Python and because it's, you know, uh, Terry Jones dressed as a woman doing a silly voice, and there are a lot of silly things going on. I think it's sort of... Shaking your, shaking your hands, jumping up and down and distracting you from how much clever stuff is going on. It's mm. well-researched. It's really well-written. It's brilliantly... I know we talk about the plotting. It's the fact you get to the end and it feels satisfying, even though you've actually watched a series of really enjoyable sketches. There's an argument to say, had it been better plotted as a story, and, you know, we've yeah. always struggled with this. You go, right, this works as a story, but there's 10 minutes in the middle where it stops being funny. It doesn't fall foul of that. So it's the perfect version of what it is. This often wins polls for the best comedy film. Mm. And one of the arguments for that, I think, is... And I wrote this, this down as a note went wow by this point in a Pink Panther film I've been quite bored Yeah, and I think for a a film that comes Mm. out at this era 79 this is alongside Airplane which is around the same time Mm. the most number of jokes I've ever seen and this is a different beast to Airplane it's it's not every joke they've chosen which jokes but there's almost no bit where the clutch goes down and the jokes stop to move the plot on the closest thing is probably there's the little bit where they're they're sneaking into Pilot's Palace Yeah, that feels a bit plotty it but it's does. still really funny. Well, the ADR's well, really I funny. think it is. It's yeah, a lovely bit of voiceover, but also I love the fact that 
it's holding off just long enough that that moment where the two rival factions come up <laughs> right next to each other yeah. feels really rewarding. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's strange because that is taking a long time to get to that point. But because at the end of that, you get this brilliant reward of the, the two rival factions walking <laughs> along right next to each other. Yeah. It sort of feels like it's, it's earned that, that build-up. How lucky that that scene that they cut started and ended with a fist fight in exactly the same geographical location. <laughs> so you can lift out the, the really weird <laughs> scene where Pilot's wife is a giant henchwoman who beats yes. them all up. And it doesn't... I, you, I, you'd never have known that there had been a cut in there. What's amazing about it is that they've they've had so much material and they've boiled it all down and they've taken up the stuff that doesn't work and they've constructed a load of sketches. But they're actually, they're really good sketches. They're the best sketches. Yeah. So what this is pointing to, I suppose, as a comedy film is a film that sacrifices nothing in plot or laughs, which is the, the absolutely impossible thing to do. Hmm. You're always trading one off against the other. Yeah. And it's probably regarded so well and loved so well as a thing of going, you can get away with it. But tellingly, there aren't many of these. It's about no. the leanest version of the film it could be, isn't it? If you look at, uh, certainly on the Criterion DVD, there are some cut scenes. And in the, in the book, the Monty Python's crap book of Life of Brian, it's got all the I've deleted scenes. I've just got scenes. that. I've just got that joke, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, got all the, it's got all the deleted scenes. You can read them all. They're all very yeah. funny. There's John Cleese's Psychopath and there's the martyrdom of St. Brian, which ended up on the Contractual Obligation album and things like that. Where he was lain upon pillows of silk and made to rest himself amongst sheets of muslin and velvet. And there stroked was he by maidens of the Orient. You don't miss any of it, though, when you watch the film, because the film is running so tightly and doing, mm. doing everything so leanly that this is, this is the best version of this film they could have made. And it's, it's uh, and I know, something else that we talk about a lot, but it's 90 minutes long or yes. 93. You just, yes. uh, it's yeah. the perfect amount of length of time for a comedy film. It's how, it's how long you can laugh for. <laughs> yeah, before you get tired. And at the end of it, you feel satisfied. And oh. when that song starts, you go, oh, I want to go home now. I'm, yeah. I'm happy. Hmm. I'm completely delighted. Even down to the extent that they've got all the titles over that beginning thing. So it just says, here are six names and then we're out. Yeah. It finishes and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful last shot. Mm -hmm. You're thoroughly satisfied and... It's, it's pulled off something which is almost, as anyone who's tried this, almost impossible. All the funniest jokes and a story. Yeah. God, what an, <laughs> what an achievement. Yeah, well, I hate it, actually. Yeah, like high bar ruined, <laughs> made everything else look shit by comparison. But yeah. Bloody yeah. film. <laughs> I think that's a perfect place to finish this and say thank you very much for bringing life for Brian. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry. 